Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, thanks. So hopefully that's uh, getting you right in the mood and you're uh, already feeling the spirit of Christmas. And as we kind of transition here, let me uh, remind you of a couple of things. I don't know about you, but I am getting inundated with uh, great offers uh, for uh, Black Friday and beyond. And my inbox is full of all kinds of stuff. And so in the last couple of days, I've been uh, undertaking to unsubscribe to a lot of things. And uh, as I was kind of going through that process, uh, I uh, recognized a few of our partners and the emails that they send up, Special Olympics and, and uh, several of our partners. And uh, I just don't want to miss what's happening. And so I want to be sure I don't unsubscribe to those things. And uh, I say that to remind you that uh, an alarming number of you over the years, for whatever reason, over the months, have unsubscribed to our email updates. So would you go on the website and be sure that you are receiving our updates? I ran into somebody the other day and they said, uh, are we ever going to meet together again? And I said, we've been meeting together for a month. Uh, They had unsubscribed to the emails and they didn't know the stuff that was going on. And so I just want to encourage you, would you guys really participate together? Would you uh, jump back on, subscribe if somehow you've disconnected? If you've never subscribed, would you do that? It's a One of our primary means of communicating with you, Uh, we won't fill up your inbox every day, but maybe once a week or so you'll hear from us. And so uh, we're thinking together about this brand new Advent series called Fear Not. And we're going to address this issue of fear and what that looks like. Now, in Proverbs 9, 10, it says these words, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a few years ago, I had somebody approach me, and they were really struggling with this verse, and they said, you know, I don't think fear in any way is good, and and I don't think we ought to be afraid of the Lord, and how how do you sort of interpret this passage of Scripture? And so you should know this about the ancients. The ancients had a different way of looking at the concept of fear. They didn't have all the psychological baggage that you and I carry with that, and, and, and so they sort of understood it in a very different way. They understood it at a very practical level. And so the way they understood it was this, whatever you fear exerts control over your life. Whatever you fear becomes front and center in your brain, in your mind, in your thinking. And so when you're afraid of something, I I don't know if this is true of you, but it's true of most human beings. If you fear something, it gets right into the center of your being. And it's hard to say to yourself, well, just don't think about it, because fear is not like that. It sort of bypasses your thinking process, and and it bypasses your filters, and you, you get it at a really visceral level. It gets into your feelings And it doesn't necessarily pass all the way through your thought processes. And the ancients recognized this reality. They they recognized that the thing you fear becomes prominent in the forefront of your mind and that it sort of inhabits you in a way that bypasses all of those filters. And so the ancients would say, listen, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not because we live in terror, but because we put the Lord front and center, a worthy place a place where God then deals with our emotions and feelings and, 
and speaks into. So this fear is, a, is an issue of respect. In fact, so explicit is the idea in Scripture that we are to fear not. We're not to be afraid of things that are lesser. We're not to be afraid of things that can distract us. But we're to put our control, the willingness to let God be center. And so the ancients understood it this way. And so when you and I begin to think about that and what that means, we're celebrating that. Now, if you're keeping up with the timeline of the narrative of Israel, and I really want to do that in this series over these next few weeks, I, I want us to think about and put ourselves emotionally uh, uh, into a place in which we are keeping up with the biblical narrative. So, so you could argue that the biblical narrative today is, is about four millennia old. Maybe you could even say it's about five millennia. So about 5,000 years this biblical narrative has been unfolding. And, and we sort of base that idea on the fact that the best information we have is that Abraham probably lived, depending on who you are, somewhere between 2000 and 2500 BC. So, so if you just put that out there and then you added on some years for the infancy narratives and the things that go on before Abraham comes on the scene, you know, and then you add the 2,000 years since the birth of Christ, you start to get into a time frame of about 4,000, 4,500, 5,000 years, depending on how you want to add it all up. So the biblical narrative has been running along, and about halfway through that biblical narrative, about 2,500 years into the narrative, 3,000 years into the narrative, we have this break, this moment where, where the biblical narrative sort of suspends its flow. And, and, and you're leading up to that moment with, with the story of the children of Israel. They've, they've been through becoming a nation. They've been through the trip to the promised land. They've been back to captivity in Egypt. They've been released and had this, this great redemptive moment called the Exodus. And they've made their way into the promised land. And, and, and then there's been the building of the kingdom. And finally the fall of the kingdom. And the exilic period. And the northern kingdom falls. And then the southern kingdom falls. And as the Old Testament narrative is winding down, we are in the prophetic moments where people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they're writing these passionate ideas about a new covenant that's coming. The, the narrative has fallen apart in some sense. The old ideas about the old covenant have, have, have just really not worked out well. And there's this anticipation of this new covenant. And as the narrative sort of winds down and the exilic period is kind of in limbo and coming to an end and some of the exiles are coming back and the temple's being rebuilt and, 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 and you've got the sort of the rediscovery of the, uh, 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 of the Levitical law and, the, and the, the, the worship practices and all that's being revived, we fall into what we call the intertestamental period or the period of silence and, and the narrative sort of goes dark. And so for 500 years, roughly, between the last writing of the Old Testament and the, and the first writings of the New Testament, the first events of the New Testament, we, we have about a 500-year period. Now, now, for the biblical narrative, the narrative is silent. But for history and the story of Israel, the history is not silent. We know exactly what's going on. So, so during this period of time, here's what's happening in the world. Greece is ascending. 
Greece is rising in power. Uh, Sparta and, and, and Athens and that whole Greek city-states and the rise of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, that's all going on. And the Greeks rise with all their philosophy and their ideas about democracy and, and aristocracy and all of those things are happening and the great birth of the philosophical movements come and then Greek, the Greek culture and Greece itself begins to descend. And it begins to descend, and, and, and from those ashes sort of come the rise of Philip of Macedon. And, and so now we have this great Macedonian dynasty that begins to rise. And we don't know a lot about Philip because we don't read a lot about history, but we do know about his son. And his son Alexander is born, and Alexander becomes Alexander the Great, and he conquers the world. And at the age of 33, he sits down and weeps because there's no more world to conquer. And then he, he dies. He dies incredibly early. His kingdom then is divided, and his kingdom is divided between his top two generals, Ptolemy and Seleucid, and they divide up that great kingdom, and we won't go into all the history, but, but suffice it to say that now Seleucid becomes the ruler over the Middle East and over Israel, and Seleucid now builds a dynasty, and that dynasty will last for three centuries. The Seleucid dynasty will rule over Israel until about 145 B.C. And in 145 B.C., there's a great uprising in Israel. We know it as the Maccabean Revolt. We celebrate Hanukkah around this event. That is what Hanukkah is about. It's the restoration of the temple and the lights of the temple and the, the, the altar at the temple. And it takes seven days to purify the oil and miraculously... Uh, the oil was able to burn long enough, uh, and so the celebration of lights is Hanukkah. And so now we begin to celebrate, In again, we're in the silent period of the narrative, but it's not silent at all, and independent, the Hasmonean dynasty, a, a, a series of kings who are rulers over independent Israel. They, they are the, the people of their own destiny, and they rule over, for, for about a hundred years, there's an independent Israel that has Israeli kings in place. And as we kind of come to the end of that century, now to around 60 B.C. or so, we see that the, the, the quality of those kings has begun to diminish and the kingdom is really beginning to fall apart because of selfishness and, and, and corruption within the government. Isn't it funny how all human institutions seem to go that direction? And while all of that is going on, Rome is rising. And Pompey in 63 BC then, he, he begins to collaborate with some of the people who are in that, the last of the hazard. And one of the administrators is an Edomian and he begins to collaborate with the Romans, and he has a son, and that son's name is Herod. And to, uh, uh, the, the, the Romans decide that they will install Herod as the new king of Israel. And so Herod comes to power. And so about 40 B.C., about 30 B.C., we have the setting. All the characters are in place for the opening of this narrative that will become the story of Israel that will become the story of Christmas. And so when you stop and you begin to put yourself into that narrative and you begin to think about these 500 years that the biblical narrative is silent but it's not silent, you start to ask yourself this question. What is the message that the angelic beings are going to, what is the message that heaven is holding 
waiting to deliver to the people. What is it that, that at the end as this old sort of covenant process and the old nation of Israel and all the old structures is sort of dying down, what is it that they want to say? What is it that God wants to be at the forefront to speak into the lives of his people? And here it is, fear not. We have it on the, on, the, on the lips of the angels. We're told again and again and again, when the angel appears to Zechariah in the temple, fear not. When the angel appears to Mary, fear not. When the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, fear not. When the angels appear to the shepherd to announce the birth of Jesus, fear not. And you could say, well, they're, they're, that's a fear not for the, you know, the incredible moment in which an angelic being shows up. It's just, it's just for the moment, but it isn't for the moment. Contextually speaking, there is no command repeated more often in the context and the core of our belief and our faith in this one, fear not. In fact, it is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. It appears in some form 365 times in Scripture, fear not. So my question to you as we open Advent is this, how much does fear have a place in your heart and in your mind? 2020, it's just been a season of fear. It's just been a whole celebration of fear. It's, it's been an extravaganza of fear. I mean, we're afraid of what this all looks like. We're afraid of the economy crashing. We're afraid of people getting infected and dying. We're afraid of conspiracies. We're afraid of the pharmaceutical companies. We're afraid of not having the pharmaceutical companies. We're afraid of everything. And the command of this season is fear not. And today, I just want to focus for a few moments on the idea of fearing the past. In what ways does the past infect your thinking? And as I've tried to think about that and, and tried to put it in some perspective, I, I find myself thinking about this. This is how the, the past affects me. I, I think about failure, certainly. I think about things in my past that if I could go back, I would do them differently. I, I would make better choices. I'd grow up smarter. I, I, I would get more maturity sooner. I, I think there are definitely things about the past that I don't like to think about. They bring shame and, and, and they make me remember sort of how, you know, underneath it all, I'm sort of immature and... And I have a set of weaknesses. And so the past has that sort of grip. But I don't think it's just the fear of failure or the past. I, I think there's also the fear of patterns. I think I see things that, you know, I, I sort of predict the future based on the pattern of the past. I, I sort of have a sense of how it's going to turn out based on what happened. And that may be the way in which the past visits the greatest trauma on my journey and my life, and maybe that's true for you. And I see this at work in all kinds of ways. I see it at work in ways in which I think about what might be next. I have a, a less of a sense of optimism about the future because of how the past has sort of played out. And then there's this reality of how that impacts relationships. Uh, there's a limitation of relationships going forward based on how they've worked in the past. We talked last week about grace and how we all want justice for everyone else, but we want grace for ourselves. How 
easy it is for us to keep track of the wrongs that have been committed against us, but how seldom we keep track of the good things that have been done to us. And how we can recite chapter and verse what people have done to wrong us, but we can seldom recite chapter and verse what they've done to help us. And I think that is how the past visits us. I think there's a lot of us who have disappointment in relationships and we have very little hope for the future because of the past. We fear that the past is going to be transferred into the present and into the future. And so our failure certainly, but, but the patterns that exist and the, and, and, and the experiences that we've had and how they hang on to us and how they shape us and how they, they fill our hearts and our minds with some sense of, of pessimism about what's next. And then I think there's traumas. I think things have happened. We've gone through experiences that we didn't expect. Maybe we got a diagnosis we didn't expect. And, and that shocking moment in which you think, I'm not immune. I, I can be sick. I can have this happen to me. Maybe someone has inflicted some trauma on you. Maybe, you know, there's been some sexual abuse. Maybe there's been some uh, emotional, uh, relational abuse. Maybe there's some story generationally that goes on in that. And the angel comes after 500 years, after 3,000 years in the narrative, in 500 years of darkness, the angels come and they say, this is what the messengers of heaven most want you to know. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I bring you glad tidings of great joy, for unto you this day is born in the city of David, listen to it, a Savior, someone who can take that past and diffuse its power in your story and in your life. And so that's, that's this beautiful moment. Now, I, I'll tell you this. This is super confusing. And so if you, if you jump into this process of sort of following along in the biblical narrative and you try to figure out how this all works, l- listen to this crazy stuff and some of the contradictory things that's going on as we try to understand the grace of God and, and how to disconnect from our past. Listen to this in Exodus 34, 7. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Well, there's some good news. I mean, as if I don't have enough to be accountable for, now it seems like I'm, I'm responsible for the sins of generations before me, down to the third and fourth generation. Uh, Numbers 14, 18 gets into the same idea. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. So far, so good. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations. I I hope what you can see is that as we sort of follow along in this narrative and we follow along in this story is the reality that there's an emerging hope. There's something going on within the context of these thousands of years of biblical narrative in which the people who are trying to understand God and living rooted in their culture that binds them and creates fear in them and creates superstition in them and how these ideas are transferred into Scripture But you got to follow the flow so that when we get to Ezekiel, one of the exilic prophets, then we start to see some some kind of hope. Listen to what Ezekiel writes. He almost seems enlightened. Ezekiel 18, 19. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? 
Since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged to them. Well, it's more hopeful. It's, it's more hopeful. That's why when you get into the depth of the exilic writers, that something is happening that is incredibly unique. Not very many places can you read Scripture and can you feel this, the emergence of this new covenant coming, but you feel it with the exilic prophets. They began to grind and anticipate a new covenant that is unlike anything they have ever understood. Nowhere is that displayed more than in Jeremiah 39 in these few verses from 29 to 34. You, you will see, as I read this to you in a moment, an evolution in thought of where Jeremiah lives, more enlightened than the old pages of Exodus and, and, and Numbers and some of the, the original writings, more enlightened. But even in this short series of verses, you'll see where he is, and then you're going to see where he comes to. Watch the emergence of how this works as Jeremiah writes. In those days... People will no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's an incredible piece of writing. And it takes us through that confusing process of those thousands of years where people are understanding that, listen, God is a gracious God, but man, He's going to hold people accountable. And it's not just going to be this generation. If you mess up, your sins are going to visit your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. Three and four generations, you're going to be inflicted with this mess. And as they move through this story, as it unfolds, and, and we move through the exile, we come to this moment where they go, you know, I don't think that's right. I think God is speaking to me and saying, there's a new covenant coming, and no longer are you going to, but, but now it's just about you. If you fail, then you're going to be accountable for your own failures. And then somewhere, there is the emergence of an even greater hope, that there's a time coming when this new covenant will be put in place, and in this new covenant, God will remember your wicked. He will forgive all of your sins and he will remember them no more. And this hope begins to emerge. I see five things about this covenant that I think matter to us. Number one, as Jeremiah describes it, a new covenant ends the generational curse. Listen, I, I don't know what happened to you. I don't know what your story looks like. I don't know what your parents did or your grandparents. If, if I were to just open up and share my story and the things that happened and, 
you know, the generational things that I could talk about, the trauma and how it's directly impacted my life. I don't know. It's not a pretty story. And I bet for a lot of us, we have that story. We have something like that. Some place back there where someone failed us, where something went desperately wrong, either inside the relationships of the family system or inside the heart and mind of one human being. And our family has a generational story that, that suffers because of failure, and it suffers because of patterns, and it suffers because of expectations. And when the angel steps out of the silence and says, fear not, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be all for all people. The message is this, the generational curse is broken. Whatever happened before no longer has power over you. It no longer needs to be the thing you fear. It no longer needs to be the thing that comes up. Every time you get into a relationship and you hope this one is better, it no longer needs to bind you in fear because the generational curse is broken. Whatever happened, whatever pattern, whatever you inherited, whatever you got, whatever personality, whatever tendencies, whatever you were taught, whatever you observed, the generational curse is broken. Maybe this morning... On this first Sunday of Advent, as we celebrate hope, you, you need to say that out loud. You need to look at yourself in the mirror, and you need to say, hey, the generational curse is broken. It's, it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not how it used to be. It's not about that. And I don't have to live under that burden, and I don't have to feel that fear, because I don't have to fear my past, and I don't have to fear the generational curse. The second thing I observed is this. It's a covenant of accountability. Uh, instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. It's hard to te feel terribly good about this part. What it does tell us is that there is still a place of accountability in the process and that Jeremiah is still working out the details of how that might look. And what we do believe is that it still matters what we choose. It still matters how we live. It still matters who we choose to make Lord of our life or what we choose to make Lord of our life. It still matters that we repent and that we seek and that we ask God for forgiveness, that there is an accountability in this new covenant, and in that covenant, you and I are figuring out us and asking God to forgive us and help us to live the life He's invited us to live, that we don't have to fear our past because God's made a way for us to live in a different relationship. And now, it's almost like Jeremiah is thinking the same things that you and I would be thinking. That, that, in fact, as we think about this reality, the generational curse is broken, but I'm still accountable. Listen to what he says next. <laughs> Number three, it is a new covenant of grace. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband, declares the Lord. And he begins to anticipate this new thing of grace, this new idea that there is not just a legalistic old system, and that's what he's highlighting. Listen, the old system didn't work. The old system of legalism and rules and regulations and, and, and processes and performance-oriented faith, and, and I got to get it right, and I got to do it right, 
And he says out loud, listen, you guys keep celebrating this old thing where, where God came and took you by the hand and led you out of Egypt. But in your humanity, you couldn't do it. You couldn't keep the rules. Even though God was faithful, you weren't. The old system didn't work. This old legalism, this old thing where every day I'm measuring my performance and every day I'm beating myself up for the things that I didn't get right and for the lack in me, for the lack of willpower, for the lack of strength, for the lack of what I want. And Jeremiah's anticipating, he said, not only is the generational curse broken, there is accountability, but there is a new covenant coming and it is a covenant of grace because the old covenant of legalism didn't work. And there's some people listening right now that you need to know this. There is a new covenant of grace so that our own failures and our own brokenness and our own sin need not cause us fear and shame and be forefront in our story and on our mind and in our thought, particularly as we move into the next part of our journey. Number four, it is a covenant of transformation. In this new covenant, he says, no longer will you talk about it and say to one another, know the Lord, because every person will know the Lord. It'll be written on their hearts. It'll be written in their minds. No longer will this faith be something that stands over there outside of us. It'll be something that gets in here. And it begins to shape how we think and who we are and, and what's going on inside of us. It will form our personalities in different ways. Instead of being a personality that sort of goes its own way, we'll begin to be formed over and over into the image, actual image of God. That's the new covenant. That's the new hope. And that it's transformational. I won't act differently. I won't try to be different. God will make me different. I'll be changed from the inside out. We still struggle with this. So many of us, we grew up in churches that didn't teach this idea. They, they taught an idea of keeping the rules. They, they got that idea about, you know, get it all right, do it all right. Da, 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 da. But the new covenant says, listen, I'm going to get inside of you. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This idea that I just, I just, what God needs from me is surrender. Repentance for sure. I am sorry for the choices and the sin in my life. Please forgive me. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But He's also willing to change us to change us from the inside out, to transform our minds, to work at the deepest level of who we are, to change the desires of our hearts so that something, we're no longer these people who are being torn in two, trying constantly to live in two worlds, but we're people who finally come into this new covenant of love and grace in which God says it's a covenant of transformation and, and I'm going to climb in with you. And I'm going to work on what's going on. And all I need is your openness and willingness to let me in. I need your invitation. Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anybody will open the door, 
I'll enter in. And I wonder how often as we think about our fear of the past, do we just say, you know what, God? <laughs> the generational curse is broken. I know there's accountability. I know there's this new covenant of grace that I don't fully understand. I don't even give myself grace. And I want to be transformed. I want you in here changing the way this whole thing works. I don't want to be over there trying to be better. I want to be changed from the inside out. And finally, number five, it is a new covenant of forgiveness and forgetfulness. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the first real statement that Jeremiah makes in which we can see the actual new covenant. In which now we get this idea, and, and we, we pick it up in other places. David's writings in the psalm, he mentions it over and over, but he can't seem to, to live there. It's an emerging idea. It's the coming revelation, the full revelation of Christ, of who God really is and how he really relates to his creation. And how through the sacrifice of his son, he offers us a, a righteousness in which this grace and the righteousness of God are satisfied. Imagine it. He will forgive our wickedness and will remember our sins no more. Do you ever think when you keep coming back to God with prayers about your past that he must look at us and go, I don't know what you're talking about. That we come back and go, you know that thing I've been praying about, that thing I've been hurting over, that thing I feel so terrible about, I wanted to talk about it some more. And he must go, you'll have to refresh my memory because when you asked me to forgive you, I removed the sin from you as far as the east is from the west. I don't remember your sins anymore. That was the old covenant of keeping track. That was the old covenant of the ledger, but this is the new covenant. And in the new covenant, there is hope and there is encouragement. Listen, I, I want to read this to you. I, I, I want you, whatever you're doing, to stop. <laughs> and I want you to sit down and I want you to let this wash over you. Isaiah, one of the other exilic prophets, he has these moments, and we call them the servant songs. We, he has these moments where he gets this deep glimpse into the heart and mind and character of God in which he begins to articulate the new covenant in these beautiful and powerful ways. In fact, there's so many of them that are a part of our Christmas celebration because of the power of the servant songs. Listen to Isaiah 53, and just let it wash over you as we open this season, as we say, I'm not going to be afraid of the past anymore. Listen to what he writes. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
the full scope of the gospel begins to come into view in these writings of the prophets who lived in this period of time in which they could only anticipate the covenant which we celebrate in this Advent season. And I just wonder this morning, as you think about it, what about your past has control over you? I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and I just want to tell you a little story. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege to speak at the university church where I graduated many years ago, and and so I was reflecting on, you know, my time that I attended church there as a student in college, and uh, you know, I'd come from churches of 100 and 150, and uh, I'd never been in a big church, and so to, to walk into a church, into a sanctuary that seat, would seat, you know, 2,500 people, and uh, you know, the beautiful facilities and the choir and the music and the orchestra and all of those experiences were new to me. And, and every Sunday, almost every Sunday, um, the choir would sing. We'd come to time in the middle of the service for prayer and, and the lights would go down and we had the beautiful stained glass windows and the curtains would begin to descend and the room would kind of come down into darkness and the choir would stand and they would begin to sing that old hymn. All your anxiety, all your cares, bring to the mercy seat and leave them there. And the pastor, Pastor G, would stand up and he would say, I just want to invite you, if you have a burden in your heart, I want you to come forward. And all across that great auditorium, people would just stream down to the altar. It was a very unique church, and the altar was... 360 degrees it went all the way around behind the platform and the pulpit and people would line and all you they'd disappear and very often he would say hold out your hands and I want you to imagine that you're gathering up all the things the generational curse your own accountability for your behavior whatever the past has for you I I just want you to imagine you're putting it all in your hands. And then he would say to us, whatever it is, I, I want you to turn your hands over. And I don't want you to take out of here what you brought in. And Sunday after Sunday, we'd go through that exercise. And I can't tell you how many Sundays as a college student trying to figure out life, how many of those Sundays I felt like my hands were just so full my heart and my mind were just so overwhelmed. And how many Sundays I just looked forward to turning my hands over. And so maybe on this first Sunday of Advent, as we declare together, fear not. I bring you glad tidings of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You don't have to drag your past with you one more day. You don't have to carry it forward. You don't have to let the generational curse, you don't have to let the pain of your own story, you don't have to let the trauma of your life, you don't have to let the patterns that have defined your past define your present or your future. Because that is the new covenant 
not because it's psychologically healthy, but because the grace of God declares to you, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and the old is gone, and the new has come. And so I'm going to say a prayer over you. And then we're going to respond to the word by singing together that beautiful hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus Born to Set Your People Free. Pray with me. God, across homes and living rooms, we're holding out our hands. And we're gathering things from our past. Fears and failures and painful things and stories of generations gone before and broken marriages and dysfunction. Abuse, alcoholism. And we're standing on the shoulders of prophets who anticipated a moment when unto us a child will be born. Emmanuel. God with us, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And we're gathering our stories and our expectations and the weight of the things we fear from our past. And we're hearing out of the silence the resonating voice of God speaking to us, fear not, fear not, fear not not fear not and we're turning over our hands and we're letting it go and we'll need help we may need to do this 20 more times before the day's over we may need to stand up and we may need to look in the mirror and say fear not glad tidings great joy there's a savior I need one and I pray that as we enter into this season of hope, that there would be a break, that you would set us free from the fear of our past. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.